You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am not going to say the name of this podcast like I usually do because I just realized that the lady who comes on before me says it like two seconds ago. And I just keep repeating that. So I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to say, I'm glad you're here. And you know how a lot of podcasts start by saying this episode brought to you by, and then they, you know, it's like some, you know, ultra fabulous mattress company or some postage meter proposition. This episode is brought to you like all the other episodes. This episode is brought to you by you. And I mean that like, if you're not listening I'm not making these things. I'm not getting people in here to talk to me. What's the point? If you're not listening, so I'm just grateful that you're there listening. And and many of you, I'm grateful that you share these episodes with other people because our audience is, is growing. I mean, slowly. It's not like we're blowing up. I mean, it's more like we're sort of popping. Um, but we're growing because people share it with people that they care about. And, uh, and so I appreciate you doing it. And of course, I'm especially grateful to the people that actually send money via Patreon um, that are sort of like, I want you to keep making these podcasts, so here's some money so that you can keep doing that because it does cost money to put this thing together. And increasingly, it's going to cost me a little more money because I'm, I'm hiring on some help to help me hopefully turn out more and better episodes. And I actually have hired somebody to do that. So that's where a lot of your Patreon patronage is going. And listen, I'm not going to tell, I'm so, I've been so disorganized up to now that I can't even remember who I've thanked, but I found a group of people that I know I haven't thanked. So I'm going to, I'm going to thank these people. Jesse, I know you're out there. And Joseph Carson, my old buddy, crazy Christian engineer who nevertheless thinks this podcast is really valuable. Um, Chris Bean, Kashi Samarawira. I like I you know, I look at these names and some of them I know, and some of them like like Bean, I know. He lives in Cincinnati. He's a wonderful person. Um Kashi, I have not yet met, but I like you already. Um Travis and Donnell Field, Julie Herrick, who I just saw just last week at the uh at the LA screening of Leaving My Father's Faith, the documentary that my friend John Wright made about me and my dad. And I think I'm going to have a conversation with John and my dad coming up here very soon because that movie, which has been screening all over the place, is going to be released on Amazon so that anybody can get it in a, in a week or so. And I'll get back to you and I'll have John and my dad and we'll have a conversation about it. But yeah, oh my gosh. I was at this, I, I flew out to LA and they did a screening at USC and then they did a screening in Beverly Hills at this like real movie theater. And uh, it was so fun. Um, and mostly, I mean, it was fun. To see, I mean, I've seen the movie now three times. And, and once I saw it with a predominantly Christian audience, then at USC, it was predominantly secular audience. And at the Beverly Hills thing, it was kind of some of both and a lot of people in transition. And uh, in all three cases, it was just a wonderful thing. I, it's not really a movie. It's not like a debate movie. It's not a movie about whether or not you should believe in God. 
It's really a movie about what happens in a family when somebody leaves and how you stay close to each other in that situation. And, uh, and, and anyway, it was, it was just cool to be with everybody. And, uh, and, 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 and when this movie comes out, I'm telling you, don't watch it alone. Watch it with other people. That's, it's made for that. It's made to start a conversation. And uh, especially conversations with people on the other side of the whole God thing from you. Um, yeah, so I saw a lot of people from the podcast there, which was totally fun. And it made me think, I should probably let people know where I'm going so that if I'm coming nearby, you can come out and say, hey, and we can hug each other, you know, as you would expect humanize me people do. And I think like I did hug every single person at that LA screening, I think. So here's what's coming up really soon, like this coming weekend, if this thing drops in the next few days, which I think it will, um... I'm speaking at the NanoCon on March 17th. That's this coming Saturday in Nashville. And that is a, a big conference put on by the Nashville Nuns. And you can find out all about it at NashvilleNuns.com. But like Matt Dillahunty will be there, Anthony Magnabosco, Mandisa Thomas, lots of kind of luminary secular folks. And me, I'm not so luminary. Um, and I'm going to be talking there. I don't even know what time. It's, 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 it's an all-day conference. It's cheap. I mean, they have made it so affordable. So if you're in the area, you should come and check it out. And uh, I'm going to be talking about the art of truly connecting. The whole conference is about sort of um, consent, sexuality, uh, relationships, uh, consensuality, and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And then I will be back in Tennessee a few weeks later at East Tennessee State University on March 29th um, where they are going to be screening that film. And I'm going to be there to meet with some secular students and then also after the film to take some questions and talk to people. So if you're, uh, yeah, if you're there, you should be there. And then all the way up in April, I will be in Calgary, in Canada yeah that Calgary you know where they had the Olympics and stuff on April 5th at 7 p.m. at the Foothills Alliance Church where I will be in dialogue with Sean McDowell and for those of you who come out of Christianity you're like Sean McDowell wait like Sean McDowell of the hyper apologetic guy like Josh McDowell's son and it's right like Tony Campolo's son and Josh McDowell's son We'll be getting together to talk about the future of the church in post-Christian culture. But really, it's just for me, it's just an opportunity to kind of model the kind of conversation that I think it's good to have with Christian folks. Kind of the, the warm, loving, like in a sense, like demonstrating that there that that all the stuff that is most wonderful about the Christian community can be just as present in a secular community if it's built around the pursuit of goodness rather than the destruction of Christianity. Um, so yeah, so th- th- so that'll be fun to be there. And if you're in Calgary, you should by all means come. Um, or actually, if you're anywhere on the plains of Canada, I mean, you guys drive a long way anyway. 
And then uh, on April the 9th, I will be in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania at the Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church, this time in dialogue actually with my old man, Tony Campolo himself at the Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church at 7 p.m. It's like a big community forum that they have. And uh, the last time I went to one, I was a spectator watching, um, watching Anne Lamott. And it was, it was wonderful. There were like 600 people there. She did the coolest thing. I remember this thing where she said, how many of you are writers? And like two people raised their hand and she said, liars, you're all liars. And then she proceeded to talk about, you know, do you write emails? Do you write blog posts? How many of you write poetry? How many of you keep a journal and all this stuff? She said, okay, now how many of you are really writers? And virtually everybody raised their hand. And she said, it's so, it's so difficult to grow as a writer if you don't call yourself one. And I think that's how it is as a human being, as a humanist, if you will. I think there's something good about saying, I am a person committed to the pursuit of goodness identifying yourself that way um, to yourself and to other people that enables you to sort of approach the world that way. I, it's funny, I have a friend who I would always say, you're a good man. He would say, no, no, no. And finally I said, you know what? You've got to start thinking of yourself as a good man because you are one. And if you and, and you'll actually be a better one if you think of yourself that way because you'll be in a situation and you're going like, what should I do? I, I don't know. What would a good man do? Oh, crud. That's what I should do since I am one. And uh, so anyway, Anne Lamott was at Bryn Mawr. I'll be at Bryn Mawr with my dad on April 7th, or April 9th at 7. And then the last one I'll tell you about, it's way off in the future, but um, I'm going to be in Seattle on April 29th at the East Lake Community Church. And you say, wait, another Christian church? And I go, no, it's not really a Christian church because it's Ryan Meek's church in Seattle. And so it's kind of a post-Christian church. Um, and I'm going to be doing their Sunday morning thing. I'm so excited about it. Um, and you can find out about all those things if you go to bartcampolo.org, which is my website. You can find out about all things, podcast things, back episodes, counseling and coaching, if you're looking for that kind of support, you know. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. As I was reading off the list of those people, I left somebody out because he's not on my list of financial supporters, but he is a huge supporter. So I, I meant to say hi to you too, Nick Hawkins, um, and to tell you that I appreciate the good vibes you send my way and the good love that you give to my daughter and my son-in-law, who are your buddies. Um, they, they, they're the ones who tell me about the way you support the podcast. And so I just wanted to let you know I appreciate that too. All right. Now, enough self-promotion. Um, now it's time for a conversation and I don't like, it's a ridiculous conversation. And I don't mean ridiculous in the sense of we say stupid stuff. I mean, it's long and, uh, but maybe that makes sense because I'm talking to a rabbi and you know how they are. They talk a lot and then you know how I am. And so this is my friend, my new friend, Rabbi Daniel Bogard, and he's not, I mean, it's funny, like all my Jewish friends, he's like, oh, if you'd have been a Jew, you could have lost your faith in supernaturalism and stayed in the religion. Um, and I think that's kind of his story. But I'm not going to tell you very much about him because in the conversation, it all comes out in the wash. 
What I will tell you is is that he he's he's a Cincinnati-based rabbi, but he's actually on his way to St. Louis, and I was introduced to him by a buddy in California. And I'm not exactly sure what this conversation is about. I mean, you can tell me afterwards. In fact, I would love it if you listen to this conversation and then tell me what you get out of it. Write me a note at barcampola.org. Um, but but I, I wanted to share it with you anyway because have you ever been in a restaurant and you see a couple at the next table and they're on a first date? And you can tell just by the way they're talking to each other. And Marty and I, when we're, sometimes when we see a couple like that, we watch them over time because what we're trying to figure out is if the date is going well. And, and every now and then you have the privilege of watching two people get excited about each other and realize, oh my gosh, I really like you. And oh, I really like you. And, they, and it just sort of builds on itself. And, and, and it's for me, that's such a thrill. And I, I guess I wanted to share this podcast with you or this conversation with you on the podcast because I think you'll sense that same first date energy like this is me and this guy Daniel who I'd only met once before realizing that we really like each other I mean I I mean it's almost like a podcast in which you see a friendship form and so that yeah so I I, I, the truth of the matter is I loved this conversation and I hope you do too and I'll catch you on the other side but how long have you been a rabbi seven years now Seven, seven years, years since you graduated from seven years since ordination, and five years of rabbinical school before that. So, so you go to five years of rabbinical school, and then you do you graduate from rabbinical school, or do they, do they just go like you're ready to be ordained? No, no, no. You graduate. Well, they call it ordination, but yeah, five years, five and years you, minimum. So you get a master's after three years, and ordination smicha is the Hebrew after five years. Okay, so you get a master's degree. Yep. In what? Hebrew letters. Hebrew letters. We like to say we know the Aleph Bet very well. Yeah, that's a marketable degree outside. Um, outside and, of the rabbinate. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so that's clearly a master's on your way to... On your way to ordination. Ordination. And then you get ordained, and you don't have a job yet when you get ordained. Like, you don't need to be... You don't need to have a, have a particular synagogue in mind to to be ordained no 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 ordination is done by uh the national institution the educational institution and is permanent it's not uh like christian ordination right you're well no i i don't know how christian ordination works right some people as i understand it are ordained by their church that does happen Um, and i don't know if that like then extends beyond i was ordained by the evangel ministerial association of meridian idaho for 25 dollars well done. Yeah, it's quite an investment. It was. It was. It was a lot easier than going to seminary. And yeah, mine cost more than that. Yeah, yeah. That and so uh, and yet you know for years I could like do marriages, sure. visit, visit uh, hospitals, do all the stuff. Um, My yeah. first wedding was done as a minister of the Universal Life Church. The Universal Life Church, yes. another fine denomination. Yes, three days before I was ordained, yeah. I needed to do a wedding for a Muslim and a Hindu friend. Really? So you had three days in which you were? I was a minister and not a rabbi. Wow! Congratulations. Yeah. So then, so then you got ordained. Um, after five years of specialized training, rabbi training. Yep. And then you start working. Then you start working. Exactly. And then seven years ago, you started working. Yep. As a rabbi. Yep. Five years in Peoria, two years in Cincinnati, and moving to St. Louis On in your July. Way to St. Louis. Yeah. So. so I get introduced to you by my friend Jim Hancock, who I know from old-time evangelical Christian youth ministry days, running big Christian events like DCLA, 
with like 10,000 so students. So funny to me. Yeah. Which, and you wouldn't. It's not the gym I know. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't think of him in that world, but he was always like the cool guy with the beret on the edge of that world. Yeah. Huh. He was the bohemian uh, evangelical. Absolutely. And he wasn't and, – and you never really thought, like, I don't think he's really evangelical. Um, you know, I, like, I don't think he's buying into all the, you know, yeah. we're in, everybody else is out, yeah. all that stuff that was yeah. kind of going – that was, you know. But he was around. Okay. And I was, you know, as I think I've told you, like, I was on this, like, kind of strange journey through it. And, um, and when I was speaking at those big events, I got to know him. And then when I moved back here to Cincinnati, he was like, you need to look up Daniel. So when I looked you up, I came home after, after having lunch with you. And I said to my wife, like, so I met the social justice rabbi. <laughs> There's a lot of us out there. But like, yeah, no, right. I didn't mean the. I meant this social justice rabbi. Is that like a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Judaism is not really the most important part of being Jewish. It's really a tribe more than it is a religion or a tribe that has a religious component to it. And so today in our world where most American Jews don't have a sense at all, no matter what they believe, that God wants them to be Jewish. Uh, that's pretty absent from how most American Jews think of their Judaism and their Jewish identity. Uh, and so, you know, I think one of the core understandings for many, many Jews is that our purpose in creation is to repair the world. Uh, and so it becomes a focus of many Jewish communities throughout the United States uh, that what binds us together is we are a community of people trying to do justice who have a sense of a shared common myth. I don't know if that was really an answer to your question. No, no, it kind of is because I was with this I was with this friend of mine the other day who is on the board, uh, he's like a hardcore secular guy, but he's on the board of his synagogue. Totally, if we got rid of our atheists, we'd have, you know, 20% of our people left. And that's, and that's exactly what he said. He said that like, when he was asked to be on the board, he said, you know, he said, I, I don't feel comfortable with this. I don't, I don't even believe in God. And the rabbi said, oh, he said, then you represent 75% of our congregation. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, th so that's the thing, like most Jews, when you say don't have a sense that God wants them to be Jewish, many Jews don't have a sense that God wants them to be anything because they don't really think that there is yeah. a personal God out there wanting anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even the whole idea of Judaism as a religion and of Jews being organized according to synagogues is really a very recent American thing. When you go back 200 years, you look anywhere in the Jewish world, and the synagogue is not the most important part of Jewish life, and the religious identity is not the most significant part of Jewish identity. And really, I mean, you can tie it to sort of the sociology of America and the centrality of the church and freedom of religion and all these uh, sorts of paradigms. And, you know, it has to be, I think, included with the fact that if Judaism became a religion, Jews in America could become white. And I don't think you can separate those two things out. And that was a revolutionary uh, piece that our grandparents celebrated and current American Jews are really struggling with. Uh, Where they were like, if we, turn, if, we, if we start to talk about Judaism the way Christians talk about Christianity, we'll fit in. Yeah, exactly. Right? They'll be Judaism, like, oh, you're white people who have, a, who, who have chosen the Jewish religion. 
there are some white people here that have chosen Catholicism. There's some that have chosen Protestantism. Exactly. Exactly. We would become Americans of the Hebrew faith rather than Jews or Germans of the Hebrew faith. If, if it had gone another way, if they, if the Jews had shown up here and they'd been like, we're not going to go with the whole religious identity thing, what would have been the other option? You know, the other piece of Jewish identity is uh, what we would call, it's not quite ethnic identity, tribal identity, uh, right? Because you can't convert to an ethnicity. Um, so, so yeah, so it, like it isn't like being like Puerto Rican because like Puerto Ricans, like you're born in Puerto Rico. It's like being Tibetan. There's a connection to being Buddhist and there is an ethnic cultural connection, but you can convert to become a Tibetan Buddhist. And you can convert to become a Jew. Yeah. You know, but you can't be like an Ashkenazi. You cannot convert to be Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi is an ethnicity, right? I did my 23andMe, and I'm 98% uh, inbred Ashkenazi. Uh, evidently, basically every Jew I meet in the United States is like a third cousin or something. Uh, yeah, so, you, right, you can't convert to an ethnicity, but the reality is— So, so Ashkenazi Jew is sort of like being a Mexican Jew or an Ethiopian Jew. Like, it's like— your ethnicity, or, or, or I guess I shouldn't say Mexican even because that wouldn't work, um, but like being a, a, a black Jew. Because Ashkenazi is like ethnic, right? Ashkenazi is ethnic, but see, this, this is where language fails us, uh, or at least contemporary language fails us. Because we, we have to remember that both the idea of religion and the idea of ethnicity and the idea of race, as long as we're talking about these things, uh, are totally socially constructed. They don't exist outside of our current context. And Judaism or, or the Jewish people are 3,000 plus years old. And so the current ways that we have of dividing up the world, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's what, whatever these things look like, religion, Judaism predates these divisions different divisions back then, different social constructs. And so I always think the best uh, construct here is tribe, because tribe has an ethnic component to it, but it's really a big family. And so just as many families have uh, a genetic relationship to each other, you can still marry into the family and you're legitimately a part of that family. You can be adopted into that family and you're just as much a part of that family as you would be uh, if you'd been born into it. Uh, and that's really the notion of the Jewish people. Okay. Uh, and so I think for most Jews, that's what they connect to. It's not a sense of... And it's a family in which most of the members don't believe in God anymore. Yeah, most of the American members don't, uh, or at least aren't certain about it. I was just in Israel, and it didn't feel like a lot of people there believed in God either. So Israel's a changing place. Uh, you know, Israel started out as a secular socialist uh, democracy on a Western European style. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Israel today is that its population is not made up of secular socialist Democrats. You know, the first half million Israelis uh, were those people. Uh, the next half million Israelis coming in the 40s and 50s, mostly in the 50s, uh, were Holocaust survivors who were, I wouldn't call them illiberal, but they're, they're people who by and large are so changed by the experience of going through that trauma, that they're never the same. Uh, but then you get about a million Arab Jews who had lived in the Arab world for 2,500 years. I mean, since the Babylonian exile in 586 BCE, 
who are ethnically cleansed from the Arab and Muslim world and make their way into Israel. You get about a million former Soviets, including about 100,000 Christians who forged documents. Uh, and you get about 100,000 or so Ethiopians. And so what you end up with is a population, not to mention, by the way, a, a million Palestinian Israelis, uh, citizens of Israel, uh, as well as all of the— Right. I mean, that, uh, right. It, that's Israel, but that's not Jewish. It's not Jewish. But what you end up with is a society that is not secular and liberal— as its default. Instead, it's a society that is becoming more and more religious and fundamentalist and illiberal by the year. Interesting. Um, just look at the populations. I mean, and in that sense, I think we need to think of Israel not— Well, yeah, because, the, I mean, the, the more religious people are, the more kids they're having. Exactly. Exactly. And each generation is progressively more religious and less liberal than the previous one, uh, which is the opposite of how we normally think things go. Uh, and in that sense, I think Israel has to be understood as a Middle Eastern emerging democracy and not as a Western-style uh, established democracy. Wow. That's, I mean, that's an interesting paradigm. Uh, yeah, it's it's Because that's not the way Americans think of Israel. No, we think of is, Israel as sort of being populated by American Jews. Absolutely. But American Jews are Americans. liberal secular people. I don't when mean the funny thing is, when you go on, when, if you're evangelical and you go on one of those like Israel trips yeah. and stuff, like the Jews that you're meeting do, they are American Jews a lot of times, or like Anglo's is the term we use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, and so you do, you, yeah, you can get you can get fooled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Benjamin Netanyahu, he sure looks, you know, like I mean, the the, the famous Israelis all like were educated. In, in Western ways or in, sure. in America itself, yeah. Bibi Netanyahu, by the way, one of the least popular Jewish leaders uh, in America. Uh, yeah, really not well liked by American Jews generally. Oh, by American Jews? Yeah, yeah. no, American evangelicals love him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's great for he's great for them. Well, I, I think we're sitting in an interesting moment for thinking about Jewish identity because, in many ways, the Israeli government has aligned itself with American evangelicals. Yeah. Which, at least in terms of the way that American tribes divide, puts them on the opposite side of American Jews. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, most of the people that listen to this podcast don't know that I spent like three and a half years like consulting or working for organizations that were primarily focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Wow. And so— From an evangelical perspective? Well, I had—this was like right after I realized like I can't work in Christianity anymore. Like okay. I'm not a Christian and I, it's not okay for me to be there. This was piecework or— Yeah, yeah. What it was was— Got it. It was—and then I got recruited by a friend who was working on a project called The Abraham Path. And he was like, we need to connect with American evangelicals because our project is to try to get American evangelicals to care about both Israeli and Jewish identity, but also to care about Palestinian Christians and just Palestinian survival. Like they were like, if you really want to help this region, it's, yep. it's not about, you know, crushing the Palestinians. It's about trying to figure out, you know, these were two staters and they were all that kind sure. of stuff. And so they were like, we need somebody who speaks American evangelical. Oh, you were the translator. And I was like, oh yeah, I love, I, like I was raised among those. That's my, that's my people. Um, and then I worked for another organization called the Telus Group that did that was taking American evangelical leaders primarily on dual narrative trips where oh, they would cool. where where we would be in a Palestinian refugee camp one day and then we'd be doing Yad Vashem the next day and then we'd be over yep. um, you know talking to um, set you know settlers the third day and it was just like 
to kind of get people to see that like there's more than one story going on here yeah. and there you know and like more than one that's true um to the people you know the, yeah. the, the, those narratives are, are are absolutely true to the people that are telling them to you they're not lying huh. uh, even though they don't line up with each other you know like so one person calls it the nakba and the other person calls it you know independence day or or you know jewish Jew- and how can we hold both of these and you know yeah. how do you how do you do that so so you know, I spent enough time going back and forth and dealing with American evangelicals on this issue that I, you know, they were more, what do you call it, Zionist than almost any Jew I know. Yeah, I mean, right. It, it depends on what you mean by Zionism, and I, I've done. I mean, a lot what, of- what I meant, what they meant by Zionism was the Jews need to occupy the entire land um, yeah. of his, uh, 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 the entire land, so that Jesus can come back and uh, and. Send all the Jews to hell for not believing in him. Um, right. I mean, they, they they weren't that crude about it, but like it was a weird, it was a weird mixture of ideas. It's this odd meeting place of philo-Semitism and anti-Semitism. It really right? was. two sides of the same coin. Yeah, they, I mean, they really um, were like our Jewish brothers, and they love the Jews. But like a lot of them, if you if you would have said to them, this, these Jews that you love, do you think that they will ultimately be in heaven? And they're like, only if they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord yeah. and Savior before yeah. they die. Well, even the notion that Jews should all return back to the promised land. I mean, this is, to me, one of the really interesting things about today is for the last however many decades in the Jewish world, there has been lots and lots of conversation about what is the border between anti-Zionism or anti-Israelism and anti-Semitism, right? And these things, it can be a fuzzy border there and often is a fuzzy border. Um, I I tend to believe that they are separate things. but what's emerged recently is that you can be deeply anti-Semitic and it causes you to be deeply pro-Israel. I mean, it's what we're seeing in the alt-right right now, where there's this sense of deeply supporting Israel because that's the place that all the Jews should go to because they shouldn't be here. Which is almost like back in right after World War II, where people were like really supportive of the foundation of Israel because they sure as hell didn't want them coming here. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but from a deeply anti-Semitic, I mean, it's, yeah, all of it's kind of crazy to me. So they become separate. You can be a anti-Zionist, anti-Semite, or you can be a deeply pro-Zionist, anti-Semite. Yeah. And that's a new thing. Um, so I don't like, so in Israel, belief in God is on the rise. Or the number of people that believe in God is on the rise. Yes. And Israelis, including secular Israelis, have always believed at a higher rate than American Jews. You know, part of this is what Israelis mean by the word secular. Chiloni is different than what we mean by secular. Right. They, they mean... Non-Orthodox. Yeah. And, and, and also, like, whatever you believe, keep it out of our government stuff. Yes. Yes, secular society. Right. They believe, you know, sort of like Ataturk in, in, in Turkey. It was yes. like, just keep it out. Like, I'm not telling you you can't believe in this stuff, but we're not going to have it. It's not going to touch the way we do our society or do, the way we do our, our government. Um, but I, I tend to think that American Jews, that one of the explanations for this difference is that when American Jews say they don't believe in God, what they mean is they don't believe in this idea of God that we hear everywhere, meaning a classic Christian idea of God. And that's not the context of Jews in Israel. So I think they mean something very, very different by the same word. And in that sense, I think when you ask both groups that same question, you're actually asking two different questions. Yeah. 
What what do they what do they mean in Israel when they say they believe in God? You know, I don't know. I, I can answer more what I think American Jews mean when they say they don't believe in God, which is that they don't believe in the idea of a human God. Right. right? A person. A person. I mean, whether we're talking about a notion of sort of an incarnate Jesus or we're talking about simply a superhuman deity. Uh, that has desires, that gets mad, that does stuff. Exactly. Uh, but some broad sense of spirituality or connection, uh, certainly you find a number of Jews who feel that. Uh, though, again, we tend to profess a lack of faith at a much higher rate than almost any other group in the United States. Um, and we find similar things with our politics. You know, in 2004, Jews were more likely to support marriage equality than any other group in the United States, including people who profess no religion. Interesting. That was yeah, quite I the mean, tangent there. Well, no, no. I mean, like, I mean, I think that if you've been around, and this maybe sort of brings us back around to social justice stuff. If you, if like, any sort of like classic liberal social justice issue, you go like, oh, the Jews, they're they're that they're, we're there. Them and the Mennonites, they're out in front on that sucker. We're there. Yeah, um, yeah. Except even more so than the Mennonites, um, you know, than than the, like Anabaptist type Christians who are also very social justice oriented, mm. but would still be conservative around issues like maybe marriage equality or yep. abortion or yep. things like that. Whereas Jews, it's like they are, they're the most liberal kind of tribe in this country. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, can you think of any other discernible group that you could more count on to be in the progressive camp on a political issue? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, African-Americans vote uh, for Democrats at a higher rate than Jews do. Uh, but Jews vote vote at a higher rate than almost uh, any other ethnic group. So we actually are a much larger percentage of the electorate than we are of the population. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and that's not even counting political activism and volunteering and running for office and so on and so forth. Sure, and even though African Americans vote a lot for Democrats for all sorts of reasons, like they're still like you not know, always so liberal. Yeah, yeah not you know, try try them on the gay marriage thing or try them on the on the abortion thing. Uh, a lot of times, there's like this very weird double talk there yep. when it comes to their candidates. So, yeah, so so I guess the thing that you know, last time we were having this conversation or a conversation, the thing that I was so aware of was is that. You know, you were talking about this congregation, you know, different congregations, some of which are like, we're not about that politics stuff. Like, we don't want to be involved. Like, we're about Jewish identity. And we've got to protect Jewish identity. And Jewish identity is always under assault. And I guess they're very, these are people that are very concerned with anti-Semitism. Concerned with anti-Semitism. You know, anti-Semitism plays a funny role for American Jews. Uh, because legitimately it's real and legitimately it's scary, but it is often also the only thing that causes us all to come together. And so sometimes it becomes like a drug a little bit. It's a good rallying deal. Right? uh, Particularly in an era when we are losing other things that we can rally around, right? Israel used to be what brought all American Jews together. And today there's almost no issue that is more divisive in a Jewish community than to bring up Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, but there, 
but the the other i mean the the other reality about american judaism is is that there are a lot of american jews that are concerned that their kids are marrying outside the tribe sure that even the people that are still in the tribe tribal identity isn't that big a deal to them anymore they're yeah. not they're not observant in any way i like this term thickness of identity yeah. Right. I, I just like the thinking of that. Right. We we can see American Jewish identity thinning uh, generationally. We can see it year by year. Uh, Forty five thousand fewer Americans uh, say that they are Jewish every year. So the thinning of Jewish identity means like I still might say, "Hey, I'm a Jew," but it's not that it's not as big a part of my identity, and it's it's not the defining part. It's not necessarily the the the, the thing that defines me. Yeah, you know, I, I like to think about the stories that we tell ourselves. This is what I mean by myth, but the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. And the reality is that a couple generations ago, if you were a Jew, 80% of the story you were telling yourself was a Jewish story. And today it's a tiny piece of that story. Uh, What's the rest of the story? It's about being an American. It's about being a suburban person. For 80% of American Jews, it's being a white person. Uh, 20% of American Jews are Jews of color, and that's a uh, rising and a quickly rising uh, percentage. Uh, but well, Why uh, is that rising? Like, are all these African Americans becoming Jewish, or are all these black Jews having lots of kids? Uh, so it's a combination of all sorts of things. Uh, and we've got all sorts of Jews of color is the reality, that uh, there have been, there has been a uptick in uh, African Americans who are converting to Judaism, uh, there's also a whole phenomenon of uh, Latinos, uh, particularly Latinos who are coming from uh, uh, Central America, who are discovering Jewish roots. Uh, so, you know, if you talk to rabbis in the southwest of the United States, they all have dozens and dozens and dozens of stories of people who show up and say, look, I'm Catholic, my parents are Catholic, their parents were Catholic, their parents were Catholic, but... Every Friday night, the women in our family put two candles in a closet, and they light them, and they close the door, and they say that this isn't about religion. This is just something that the women in our family do. And it's these lingering echoes of 1492 and the Inquisition. And, you know, they, they did a genetic look at uh, Spaniards today, and two-thirds of Spaniards have noticeable, identifiable Jewish genes. Uh, and we find this throughout the Americas. So when you think about the people who are trying to flee from a Spain that's kicking out all of its Jews, I mean, literally 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue and Spain kicks out all its Jews too. Uh, that's, that's the rhyme that I remember it with. Uh, but these people had to go somewhere, and many of them end up in America or in the Americas as secret converso Jews. And long after the memory of that, uh, has disappeared. There are these lingering rituals or cultural pieces or artifacts that have been passed down or uh, deathbed confessions is a really common thing. Uh, you hear about grandchildren whose you know grandmother confesses this on her deathbed. She doesn't want the secret to disappear. Uh, and so a lot of these people are finding a home in Jewish identity. Um, and that's not always religious identity. And it, are those guys thick? They tend to be. Yeah, because they, they, they like, they've opted in. Yeah, right? For the first time in Jewish history, 
everyone is a Jew by choice. That's our term we like to use for uh, converts. Uh, but everyone's a Jew by choice. Because, you know, any other time in Jewish history, 75 years ago in the United States, in Europe, wherever, you didn't have a choice. The world outside was going to tell you you were Jewish and you didn't have much mm -hmm. of an option. Today, if I take off my kippah, maybe if I shave my beard, though, you know, beards are in in the hipster era, uh, I, I'm just another white guy in the street. And that's new. Uh, and that's powerful. And that's where Jews are going. It's not like 45,000 Jews a year are converting to Christianity. We're just becoming secular Americans. And, and, and that worries a lot of people in, 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 in the movement. Like, like, like there are synagogues that you might know that are very obsessed with how do we keep our Jewish kids Jewish? Sure. That's, that is the purpose of the American Jewish synagogue for at least the last generation. I mean, the overt purpose, that's the business uh, synagogues we're in, was the formation of Jewish identity for the next generation. And it's why we end up with things like parents who drop off their kids at Sunday school every week, and that is the most Jewish thing that those parents do in a week. Right? Um, they're not engaged. They just want to get them, get them bar mitzvahed. Get them bar mitzvahed, but it's the place that you go so that your kids can be made to be Jewish. It's, it's where Jewish identity will be inculcated. And the reality is fewer and fewer people are... And once you're Jewish, like, then we don't need to do anything more? Like, we're done here? You know, it's a sense of wanting to pass on this identity, this ethnic, tribal, religious, whatever identity. Uh-huh. Uh, even though it is important maybe in your own story but not in your own life. And the reality is kids pick up on that. And we know the studies actually show that uh, kids, Jewish kids who go to Sunday school are less likely to be Jewishly engaged older on uh, than kids who don't go to Sunday school. But kids whose parents light Shabbat candles every Friday night, those are the kids who tend to have thicker Jewish identities because it's a part of their family, their family and their life. It's not a part of it's not like this strange add-on that has nothing to do with anything else in my life or my family or anything. Yeah, yeah. right? I mean, the classic line is, I hated Sunday school, so you're going to have to go and hate it too. Now, you know, I mean, the reason why this is so interesting to me is because coming out of Christianity mm -hmm. and entering into secular the secular world, like, I, you know, again, like I'm a community guy. I'm a social justice guy. Totally. Like, so I immediately was like, oh, I don't believe in God anymore, but I still want to pursue goodness and loving relationships mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So I went looking for that tribe of secular humanists, or I didn't even yep. know the name. I was yep. just like, I went to some atheist clubs. I, I figured I'm an atheist now. Sure. Like, so I wanted to be with the atheists who were all about the same values that I was about. But what I found was a lot of times I would walk into groups and they were very about atheist identity. They were like, sure. they wanted like, what is an atheist? Let's define the terms. I'm an atheist. We need to make more atheists. Is your kid an atheist? You know, here's an atheist t-shirt. Yep. You know, fight for atheist rights. Separation of church and state stuff mm -hmm. was all about sort of like, it's okay for us to be out atheists. And like, you know, they were very into atheist identity. And, um, and I was like, okay, but like once you're an atheist, like then what? Like, what are we going to do? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. Like, like what are the implications of not believing in God? And they were like, no, no, no. We don't want to talk about the implications of not believing in God. We just want to talk about, like, 
why we don't believe in God mm-hmm. and why it's so important not to believe in God and why it's harmful if people do believe in God. And when you started talking about Jewish identity and synagogues that were so concerned with protecting Jewish identity that they weren't excited about rabbis getting involved in like the women's march or they weren't like thrilled about their rabbi, you know, being in a part of some, you know, interfaith collaborative to to, to fight for affordable sure. housing. Sure. Like, which I would perceive like when, when you were sort of like, and I'm more of a social ju-, like it felt like the same, it felt like there was a parallel there in the sense of like Jews that are really so obsessed with Jewish identity that they that they stop thinking about, well, but what are the implications or like what's the point of being a Jew? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, look, I... And what do you think is the point of being a Jew? Oh, that's a big question. Um, like not, not, not what is a Jew, but like what's the what's point? The point? Yeah, yeah. Why bother being one? Let Why should I convert? Let me the first question first. You know, I think it's important to point out that this is the first moment when Judaism can really ask that question, first of all. What's the point of being a Jew? And what is the point of Jewish identity? Uh, because the reality is, you know, we, we can't forget a third of the Jews in the world were murdered 70 years ago. And that is a trauma that is deeply embedded in the American Jewish psyche. Uh, in simply the in Jewish, every psyche. Jewish psyche. Yeah. Uh, and so the notion of Jewish survival felt very different than just the notion of ethnic preservation, if that makes sense, or of religious preservation. Uh, It felt like... Family preservation. Family preservation, and overtly, you don't hear this language as much anymore, but overtly about not letting Hitler win. And there, there was really a part of that. And so in that sense, dropping your kids off at Sunday school, even if you didn't believe in it, even if you didn't practice, was an act of protest and of defiance against fascism and against annihilation. Um, So I say that to give the benefit of the doubt for the fact that, uh, um, you know, I have a pretty strong critique of contemporary Judaism, uh, which I think the point became uh, for much of the Jewish world, much of the Jewish institutional world, I should say, preservation of Jewish identity for its own sake. Uh, And for me, that collapsed. I, I, I I felt like I built the whole foundation of what I was trying to do in the world around that and then realized, came, came to really sort of a, a, a Paul on the road kind of moment, uh, to mix our metaphors yeah, here, yeah. Uh, where I realized that, at least for me, there's no point in the preservation of identity for the sake of preservation of identity. That identity, whatever we're talking about, religious identity, ethnic identity, political identity, tribal identity, it has to exist to do something in the world. It is a tool, and I had been treating the tool like the thing that I was supposed to build. Um, Your parents. Yeah. Were they, was their Jewish identity thick? Were they into it? You know, generationally, certainly thicker than my generation, um, but individually, yeah, in different sorts of ways. My dad is— Because I know they were social justice people. Yeah. Uh, my dad is deeply agnostic. You know, you find atheism in 
the Jewish community, but much more often than you find atheism, you find, because like you mentioned, I think atheism often has a militant identity quality to it. Uh, you find people who just don't care very much about the question. God and the questions surrounding God are not central to their life and aren't the sorts of things they want to spend their time with. And so my dad self-identifies as a uh, pious agnostic. Uh, you know, I think he certainly doesn't believe, but that's not so important to him. What is important is that he finds meaning lighting the candles on Friday nights. Uh, and he insists that everyone in the family, when we sit down to have a meal, say a bracha, say a, a blessing before we eat. This is my... Uh, secular humanist father, right? Right. Uh, my mom has a much stronger sense of spirituality, but was not as, I don't know if it's fair not to say as culturally Jewish. Um, I think my dad grew up enmeshed in a Jewish community and a communal life that right. continues his parents today. Were, his dad was... Was his dad a rabbi? No, his dad was a, a temple president, though. Okay. Um, you know, I think my dad's roots were more in cultural Judaism, and my mom's roots were more in uh, American spiritualized religious Judaism. Uh, interestingly, they grew up at the same congregation. Yeah. Um, didn't know each other, but... And, and they raised you... So my dad really didn't want to join a congregation and really didn't want to indoctrinate us in Sunday school. Uh, no, that's his right. kind of language right there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and my mom couldn't imagine sending us, not sending us to Sunday school and being involved in a Jewish community. Uh, so at the time when I was a little kid, uh, there was a new startup Jewish community, a breakoff uh, led by the first uh, woman rabbi in St. Louis, Rabbi Susan Talvey. Uh, and it was a home for hippies and justice workers and gay and lesbian Jews and Jews by choice. And, I mean, Susan in the early 80s was doing gay marriages and sitting at the bedside of gay men who were dying of AIDS uh, at a time when... And that appealed to your dad? Was that the part of it that appealed to your dad? Like, Yeah, I think my dad had this sense that those were values that he wanted me to have, even if he wasn't so sure about the religious pieces that went along with it. Uh, and I think it was also a check that he didn't mind writing because it felt like his check wasn't going to save souls or to preserve identity, but to change the world. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so he was like, we can do this. We'll be part of this. And your mom was like, okay, we can like, it sounds like it was a, a solution that worked for everybody. Yeah. 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 Compromise. Uh, and did he show up at synagogue? Did he go? No. My dad says he goes uh, to shul once a year on the high holy day so that he can remember why he doesn't go the rest of the year. <laughs> but, he just, but he writes a check. He writes the check. Um, and, and, he was happy en and he was happy enough for you to go to Sunday school there and to go on, like, did you, did you, did you go on some trip? Did you, did, did, you, did you do stuff with the group, the youth group? So I was never a youth group guy, uh, but yeah, I mean, at CRC, you know, the youth group would go and that was the name of the congregation, CRC. It's also where I'm going to work. Uh, but, you know, a youth group trip would often be to go help winterize the windows of homes of people who were living in poverty. Uh, and you would go on that. And you'd go and do that stuff. I mean, that's what. So it's like a club of nice people saying, like, let's go make the world a better place. Yeah, though actually CRC is a deeply spiritual place. I mean, that's what's sort of interesting. Not everyone engages in that sense of spirituality. 
but it's there. But it's it's there. Um, As opposed to like a, a secular humanist gang like the one I'm putting together that people are deeply committed to like helping one another and reaching out to other people and making other people's lives better and fighting for social justice. But like, you know, I guess like I, I don't think anyone would describe us as deeply spiritual. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's a sense in which, you know, if you cultivate enough mindfulness and if you cultivate enough ritualized, you know, like celebration of life, you might look spiritual. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I mean, maybe that is sexual spirituality. I, like, I, I, the word spirituality is a really weird word right now for me because, like, I, you know, coming out of evangelical Christianity, spirituality had to do with, like, the Holy Spirit. Like, yeah. it, was, it was a connection to God. I don't... I don't know what it like. What does it mean when you say you're when you say CRC is yeah, yeah. spiritual? What does that mean? I, so, because I think a lot of my friends want to be. They're like, I'm. I don't believe in a personal God, but I'm still spiritual. But like, I'm like, what do you mean by that? So I have two answers: one practical, one theological. Um, the theology comes from Martin Buber, uh, a uh, um, German Jewish philosopher of the 1800s. 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 Late 1800s. Yeah. I mean, he was. Yeah, maybe through the early 1900s, yeah. dies around World War One, maybe. So yeah. Anyhow, uh, Martin Buber has this idea that he says that God is the word that we use for relationship. That God is functionally found in relationship. He talks about this idea of I and thou relationships uh, versus I and it relationships. It, most relationships are transactional, I and it, right? I really. Oh, I used to preach this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah, this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I used to have a whole sermon where I would like, you know, talk about like we treat people as functions, but then occasionally we look the other person in the eye, and, and it's an I and that, yeah, right? And thou. A full, uh, to put it into religious language, a full image of the God, uh, of God, right? Someone and it, made but to put it in secular language, it's the sense in which, from the depth of my being and my and my true my, my kind mm-hmm. of innermost essence i connect with it your innermost essence yes and 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 uh and it's a moment that's real see and this is what i think is so interesting i think we mean the exact same things by the words we just used right there yeah uh and in that sense you know i'm not sure that my jewish spiritual religious identity is in any level of dissonance with secular humanism which i also feel very much a part of that tribe yeah, no, I think you're right. Like the, the, the problem isn't that like we're, you and I are having a conversation about how certain Jews have spiritual – like your, yeah. your, your mom and her Jewish friends have spirituality and my secular humorous friends don't. Like it's like whatever that spirituality thing is, we probably both have it. But at a place like CRC, people are comfortable calling it spirituality. When you sure. get with the secular humanist, they go sure. like, hey – Hey, careful. You you don't call that spirituality because like I don't believe in spirits. So the other piece too for Jews is spirituality is the word that we use in contrast with religiosity. We're not religious. And religious is a word that's very uncomfortable for many Jews. Very, very uncomfortable and not one we like to put on. But spirituality feels different. See, uh, and what that's where I go, like, what does religiosity mean to Jewish people? That, religiosity that are uncomfortable seems to with be it. faith. And we are not a people about faith. Uh, you know, the, that's even true of 
Orthodox Judaism and of traditional Judaism and of Judaism a thousand years ago. We're okay. not okay. about faith. You don't have to believe X, Y, and Z to be a Jew. You have to act in X, Y, and Z. See, what's funny is I think to some of my secular humanist friends, when I say spirituality, they think, oh, sh- you're talking about faith. Faith, huh? You're talking about believing in spirits. You're talking about yeah, believing yeah, sure, sure. in woo-woo. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what they always call woo boards. Yeah, exactly. And I go like, I look, all I want to talk, like all I'm trying, I'm trying to come up with a way of describing for you sublime moments or, or, or transcendent moments at which I, I literally transcend or rise above my individual identity mm-hmm. and I feel connected to either nature or to sure. another person in a way that is, you know, significant and moving and kind of, what's the word? Uh, there's a word for it where uh, it's, it's hard to describe. It's, 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 it's. The numinous, that's what yeah. Otto called it, yeah. And, and I go like, no, that that's what I want to talk about. Like, and it can happen at a rock concert. Totally. And it can happen, like, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl in Philadelphia, there's the, <laughs> there's a transcendent emotion that, that enveloped yeah, yeah. the city okay. in a beautiful way. Um, and, and, and so... It's when you lose your individual story and become a part of a deeply collective story. Yeah. Like, and, and in a weird way, like, sometimes it happens to somebody alone on a walk in nature... Totally. Or alone in a task in front of a computer where they get flow going and they lose their sense, uh-huh. they, they get lost in the task totally or they get lost in nature. And I'm going like, that's, that's what I mean by spirituality. Or, or, and and what's, what's ironic is I know people that are so like, that's what they mean by religiosity. They're like, oh, religiosity is just when a group of people get together to pursue those experiences. So I, I think when Jews say they're not religious, what they really mean is they're really uncomfortable with that whole Christian thing. I think that's really what the word religious is. And that means. idea of, 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 ha- of being defined by what you believe. believe. Uh, but so the, the other uh, definition I was going to give of spirituality, the, uh, the uh, uh, practical one, there was someone, I wish I could remember her name, who wrote a PhD thesis on spirituality within Jewish synagogues in America. Uh-huh. And her real question was, when people talk about a place being deeply spiritual, what do they mean? So she looked at, I think she picked 39 different places, which is an auspicious Jewish number, uh, that uh, were sort of had a buzz around them that they were deeply spiritual, spiritual places. places. And you know what her conclusion was? No. Great music. That's what people tend to mean when they say spirituality. That generally what they mean is that the music is really great and participatory. Shit, that makes sense. It makes total sense. I, I mean... Right, I, I think of the two times when I have felt most spiritually connected. Um, religious language would be felt the presence of God, but you know that doesn't always feel comfortable to me. Um, one was music around a campfire with people, and one was being deeply alone in the wilds of Tibet. Yeah, what well, did they have to do with music? Uh, actually, the second one did too. A different kind of music. Uh, I I spent uh, six weeks camping out in Tibet as part of a, a study abroad program in college, and one evening I just started walking away from the camp. Yeah, you got to understand we were camping. I don't know, two hundred kilometers away from the nearest human civilization, and it's an otherworldly place where everywhere you look are red mountains, red barren mountains. I mean, it looks like Mars. Uh, and the atmosphere is real thin, average elevation of 16,000 feet, so your voice doesn't carry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I must have walked, it couldn't have been more so than a mile. the silence must be deafening. Yeah. So I walked a mile and realized that it didn't matter how loud I screamed, no one could hear me. 
And so I screamed as loud as I could over and over again, which in its own form is kind of music. And it was a total loss of self, uh, which is also the experience I think I have with music. That when, I, when I've had those deeply spiritual experiences in music, it's always in moments, you know, you talked about flow, but it, it, I think a flow is almost the loss of self. Uh, the ego disappears and it becomes a um, connection with something something different, something bigger. Yeah, and I, I guess, like, to me, th- like, that's a, that, that can be a f- fully secular experience. Like, totally. And so that's why I talk about secular spirituality, and I think, like, some, some people are experiencing that through mindfulness, other people are experiencing it through music, mm-hmm. choirs, um, yeah. you know, like, you know, gospel choirs, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been, my wife part, was part of this Ubuntu community choir out in L.A. Cool. And, you know, they were just singing these tribal songs. They didn't even know what they meant. It didn't matter. They got transported. There's something about not understanding the words that helps. And so I'm just like, okay, that's, yeah, so that's spirituality. And I guess, so this, this when you're getting back to your parents in that yeah. synagogue, like for your mom, it was a spiritual place. It was a place where that part of her life got nurtured. Yes. And for you too? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I'm a musician. I didn't know that. And so that's... What do you play? Uh, guitar is my main instrument, but I can fake it on most stringed instruments. Mandolin. Uh, I've been playing a lot of the ukulele. Uh, really? A little, little bit of banjo, uh, some piano, blues harp. Do you play in bands? I was in a high school band. Yeah, but uh, now you just play. Now I just play. I, you know, I, sometimes music is uh, part of my rabbit. It was not here in Cincinnati, which is actually another reason I think uh, it was the wrong match. Uh, but no, yeah, yeah. It's so funny because my wife just started taking guitar lessons last week. Cool. And, I mean, she, she's played guitar off and on, you know, and she's had arthritis that stopped her for a while. Yep. And then now she's, like, in a place where she can do it. But I swear, like, she's been dying to get back to playing music because mm-hmm. she, like a lot of ex-evangelicals, post-evangelicals, miss reliable ways of feeling spiritual mm-hmm. and playing music, singing, all those things, like the connector points to her. It's funny, you get with, you get with the, again, the, the, the atheist identity crowd, mm-hmm. there's no music. There's very little music. Interesting. And um, when they get together, they don't sing together. By the way, often lots of Jews at that meeting too. Yeah. yeah. And so, but what, what's ironic is, if you were really into Jewish identity, mm-hmm. you would sing. And if you really, honestly, I think like if you really wanted to affirm atheist identity, you would sing. Because like that's like, rationally, that would be a good way to... Sure. Look at communists. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'm talking communists of, you know, 100 yeah. years ago, 150 years ago. Singing was a huge part yeah, of what they were it, doing. They got it. It's just it's just science. Like there's a, but what's interesting is, is that, of course, when you get with the social justice people, they sing in any in any organization, in any group. They say, hey, we're not really we're, we're we're about changing the world, but we're singing. And of course, then they end up with identity as a you know, like. Identity. It feels to me like your your Jew your your Jewish folks that don't want to do social justice, like they're missing out on totally kind of the biggest ticket to identity formation. Well, they, that's what I tell uh, you know, particularly some of the very committed 
Jews who exist in what I'd call the funder class of Jewish institutional life. Like everyone else, uh, uh, the Jewish community is experiencing massive income inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so more and more our institutions, particularly our legacy institutions, are funded by a donor class rather than by the population. And as always happens, it means that our institution institutions answer to a donor class rather than answering to uh, the rank and file, the rank and file, their constituents at yeah, some yeah. level. Uh, but that's what I tell them when I tell them I'm getting out of the business of Jewish identity. Uh, my argument to them is actually, I believe, getting out of the Jewish identity business and getting into the use of Jewish identity to change the world is the best thing we can do for Jewish identity. I, I think a byproduct of that is that when we get people together to do good as Jews, we are uh, a side effect is a thickening of Jewish identity. I don't think it should be our goal. I think that's the mistake when we make that our goal. Uh, but I think as a side effect, actually the way we're doing it or the way I'm, I'm hoping to do it uh, is the best way. Of yeah, thickening. and in a weird way, it's, it's, it's similar. Like, I feel like if somebody were radically committed okay. to doing good in the world, to making the world a better place, yep. or, or, or even just to having the best possible relationships. Yep. Like, I just want to be the best dad, the best spouse, the best friend, the best citizen. I, I mean, I, like, I will study to be this. I will work out to do this. Like, I will turn over every, every scientific study to find the most efficient way of doing this. Mm-hmm. I feel like people that were serious about that would end up secular. I mean, I deeply feel like mm-hmm. I, I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like if they kept excavating, like, okay, if you want to really care for this person, like, is it would it be better to like teach them about a personal God and and like impose it, like, or like, I feel like almost anybody that was like, I want to do the best I can by my kids, and that like was willing to like scour the earth for the best parenting skills, yeah, yeah. would go like, yeah, like. Inculcating them with a belief in a, a in a God that takes away their agency, that's not good for my kid. And like, and so in a weird way, if I really wanted like to do, to go on the Richard Dawkins project mm-hmm. and like go like we need to we need to stamp out you know religious you know we need to stamp out Christianity we need to stamp out be- the belief in God and all forms of theism, I go like man, then stop trying to stamp out all forms of theism. Get everybody turned on to loving relationships. Get everybody turned on to social justice, and they will figure it out on the way. Like they will, like it will become a practical matter where they go, like, yeah, this God stuff isn't helping me in the thing that's really important, which is loving this person. Like, yeah, yeah, this God stuff isn't really helping me to make the most of my life. Like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to be thankful, and this uh, this particular mythological framing doesn't help. Mm-hmm. I just feel like people would get there if you if you just created a tribe of people that were maniacally committed to loving relationships. Yeah. I mean, you know, not today, not tomorrow. Yeah, yeah sure. But like eventually, I feel like, the, I feel like people would, the, what, what they would do is they would go like, no, no, the stories are still useful. As long as you know their stories. Yeah, so they, there you've uh, um, described Reform Judaism. Uh, that's what Reform Judaism's always been. Right, stories are still useful as long as you recognize that they're stories. Uh, right, it's the self-aware 
reconstruction of mythology. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm reading this, I mean, and I don't know what I think of this book, and I don't, I'm, I'm scared yeah. to even tell you I'm reading it because, like, everyone has an opinion on this Jordan Peterson guy right now. Um, but Jordan Peterson has this book called 12, you know, sort of 12 Rules for Life, like Ways to Overcome Chaos. And it's, he's huge right now in the, in the academic world and, okay. and, and among young, um, young men, young white men. Um, he's like this YouTube father figure. Got it. Um, but uh, he's also a mythicist in a very real way. Like he real and like the second chapter of this book, he just excavates the Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel stories. And he's like, these stories are like strip. They, they are they are the the purest form of sort of human mythologizing. And mm-hmm. this is what they're saying, and this is what they're doing, and this is how they operate. He doesn't think they happened. I mean, I, I get no impression that he thinks any like they're anything more yeah, yeah, than sure. stories. But he's like, you know what? When a story holds on for thousands of years, it's probably because there's it's ta- like it taps into something primal or it taps into something true about the human experience and so he thinks there's value in the story and there's value in holding on to the story and and interpreting the story and understanding the story but he's like they're stories i you know that to me that's one of the lessons that i took away from this last election in 2016 that we can't turn our back on mythology that fundamentally humans crave the answers that myths always provide, which is where did I come from? Who am I today? And what am I supposed to do with my life? And what happens when I die? I guess that's not so important of a question to me. It's so interesting because it it, it feels like it's a very important question to a lot of people. I I guess it's not quite important to me outside of what are the implications of my life? Right. Uh, But... Yeah, I mean, you, you're again. You're, I, I mean, I feel like you are a, like you are a very, a very sort of humanistic person. Yeah, and I think that the humanist goes like, yeah, death is really important, but death is really important because it lets me know I have a limit, and that I need to make the most of, of my life. But I also think that's a Jewish thing. I think that's a traditional Jewish thing. Uh, you know, yeah, because we don't have an answer about what happens after you die. Uh, you know, even you got- even the Jews that are very very religious don't. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you asked earlier, what is the purpose of being Jewish? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't think there is a purpose other than instrumental purpose. I don't think there's an absolute value in being Jewish. I don't think the world is better because people are Jewish. I think being Jewish can help you make the world better. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of big Jewish myth the core Jewish myth that I subscribe to, and I mean this totally metaphorically, but this is deeply traditional, and this is a myth that Orthodox Jews subscribe to too, is the notion that before there was creation, there was just the divine. Everything was just the divine. And so in order for there to be room for creation, the divine had to contract. We call this the process of tzimtzum, uh, mystical contraction. And so the question is, if God contracts, or if the divine contracts, what happens to, this is a very physical description, what happens to the peace of God that used to be in the space that creation is now going to go? And this myth, it's called the Lurianic myth. Uh, someone who's speaking of myths, my family has a myth that we're descended from, uh, probably just as mythological as the rest of this. Uh, and so the answer to what happens to this divine overflow is it's put into a number of vessels that are built. 
but no vessel could be strong enough to contain the essence of the divine. And so these vessels shatter and spread throughout creation, these broken vessels. Uh, and yet, just like a clay pot that had been filled with oil would still have residue on it, so too the idea is that these broken pieces still contain the light of the divine. And so the answer to why there are humans is we were created as God's subcontractors to go out and find the brokenness and lift it up and redeem the sparks within them. And so Jewish afterlife theology simply says that you were created for this purpose and if you didn't do your work, there wasn't a purpose. Creation isn't about humans. It's about what we do with our lives to repair the brokenness around us. And so in a broad, broad sense within the Jewish world, that is understood um, in a way that can feel like secular humanism in the Orthodox world and in the Reform world. You see that, I gotta tell you, you've said so many things that uh, resonate with me. And oddly enough, and maybe it's because of my evangelical background, like anytime somebody starts talking about repairing the brokenness, mm -hmm. I just go like, I can't, I can't hear that anymore hmm. because it presupposes that there was a time when things weren't broken. So we don't have a fall. That's not for us. It's not a fall story. And the explanation for why there's brokenness is because we haven't fixed it yet. It's repair. It's not repair in the sense of repairing See, things then I, then, that then, were Then I object broken. to the word brokenness. I'm like, call it chaos. And I'll understand, like, like yeah, to go okay. like, there's, you know, there's chaos, and then order is emerging out of chaos. But we have brokenness in our order, too. We're in a highly ordered world where 50 families in the world control as much wealth as the bottom 50% oh, of the world. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No. That's order. But, like, but, yeah. It's the wrong order. It's, it's, a, it's a bad order. It's order. It's right. bad order. And so this myth would say— but I, but I would say, like, the order that we have now— is arguably better than the order there was totally. 5,000 years ago when people were dying of, totally. this you is know. Pinkerty's point. Yeah. Right. That like, that like, I'm not saying that order has emerged. I'm simply saying that con like consciousness, like love, mm -hmm. like, like language, there was a time in our world, in, in the universe, where these things didn't exist at all, as far as we know, mm -hmm. and then they emerged. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying they're perfect. And in fact, like, like our bodies, like, have lots of parts or have parts that are not like you wouldn't design it this way. Sure. Like it just emerged, and you go like the stuff that we still have, some of it vestigial. Like it worked at another time for us. Doesn't work now. It's not like we're designed. It's just like, but there's a significant amount of order to our bodies, mm -hmm. symmetry like stuff that works like that more than 12 billion years ago. So I, you know, and I, so the, but the idea of brokenness, the idea like we're repairing the brokenness, I go like, aren't we just trying to expand and improve the order? So I think that's what I mean. And that's what this myth means. It's a sense that we are here to continue the incomplete work of creation. Um, you know, I, Maybe some of the disconnect here is because I grew up in a Jewish community, I don't feel any need 
for my language to not be metaphorical because we're not about belief and we've never been about belief. So when you tell these stories, everyone knows that you're not supposed to believe them. They're supposed to impact you. Yeah. Right. It's the same idea as the Exodus story. The core story of what it means to be a Jew is that my people were slaves in the land of Egypt and that this experience of slavery and of oppression obligates me in the world today to prevent it for others. And I don't think it matters even one little bit bit that almost certainly the exodus from Egypt didn't happen, certainly not on the scale that's described, right? There's a stunning lack of evidence for that. Uh, but I, I don't care. I don't think it matters. And I don't think it matters to most of the Jews who are around me because it's not about did my ancestors really go through this experience of slavery? It's about how can I be changed by telling the story that I was a slave and need to make the world different today? It is a self-conscious and self-aware in overt use of mythology because we're not hung up on belief. We're not asking you to believe X, Y, and Z, and we're not expecting that anyone walks into the room thinking that this is a gathering about belief. Did that make sense? I think so. I mean, you know, it's, it's always painful when you realize how trapped in yourself you are like you think the way you think and so you go like when I hear you say that I go like do I run every damn thing through a matrix of belief hmm. and I go like I probably do and you go like why is it and you're like I was raised with people that were obsessed with what you believed so I don't know if there's a connection here but I'll tell you in my anecdotal experience I work with 15 potential Jews by choice who come from Catholic backgrounds for every Jew by choice that I work with that comes from an evangelical background. Oh, yeah, and I wonder if there's something there. Yeah, I mean, people don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Catholicism is probably much more... Com uh, Catholicism is closer to a mythological understanding of some of these stories like, and less obsessed with belief. It's more about practice. Well, and there is such a... Th identity as a fallen Catholic, right? There, there is a sense of cultural Catholicism that there is, right? That for a lot of Yeah, you're Catholics, a fallen Christian, think, you're not a Christian anymore. Right, but if you're a fallen Catholic, you still have this deep sense of identity. And in that way, Catholicism almost has a tribal element like Judaism. It's not quite. I, I tend to think Tibetan Buddhism is the best analog uh, in the world for it, not just because I yeah. Spent a semester studying that and have an adopted Tibetan sister. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about me. <laughs> Not, no, I mean like my own. Yeah, like, yeah, totally. I, you know, it's like my own problem where uh -huh. I go like, yeah, like I, you know, and, and, and not just me, but a lot of people that I know that just, you know, like mythology, mm -hmm. um, saying I come from a people that were enslaved, even if you're like, and we act, and we as a people, you know, escape slavery this way. Mm -hmm. we're, we're delivered this way. I'm going like, yeah, we don't really believe that. Like, it's just so foreign to me mm. because of the way I was raised. And a little bit, like, I go like, whenever somebody starts to talk like that, I go like, woo woo, you know, weird. Like, you know, I, you know, yeah. and all my hackles go up the same way. Maybe some of your Jewish friends, when somebody talks about religion, yeah. 
their hackles go up yeah. and they go like, wait, hey, I thought this was going to be about, you know, something spirituality. And yeah. then you're talking about believing. Um, it's just, it's just, it, again, like it's just, sometimes I feel like I'm trapped and I, I, I get angry that like I was raised with language and with mental categories that make me unable to think in any other way than the way I think. But isn't that true for everyone? It is true. I'm right? sure it is. I'm sure. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was reading something the other day about how if you learn another language, um, you can think different thoughts. And they're, they're like the reason why it's important that pe- we teach we have is that the, there's a there's a qualitative difference between somebody who speaks two languages and somebody who speaks one mm-hmm. because the person who speaks one thinks that like thought is contained in this language, like that all. And, and and all of a sudden you realize like there are things that like you can't express in this language that you can express in this other language and it becomes yep yep it, it changes their way of it changes the way they hold on to their own thoughts I think it's why living in a different culture is so important right it, it's not about what you learn at the other culture it's about what you realize you assumed everyone did and was just the yeah. way of the world. And it's I guess just I just, not. Yeah. And sometimes like in a conversation like this, like, you know, I, I, in the end, I just go like, you know, even, you know, I go back to the beginning of the conversation, probably like, like what for some people would be the boring part of the conversation. Like talking about like Judas, Jewish identity and just, you know, it, Israeli identity and whatnot. And I go like, yeah, like even to the extent that I go like, yeah, I think I understood what you said about that. And like, I've been to Israel and I think I understood. And then you go like, when you get to this last part, you know, like I don't think I, you know, like because like the way those the the way those people are talking about spirituality or about myth or about the way when they tell their stories to their kids, like I like I'm think as I watch this Jewish father or mother telling their story story the story to their Jewish kid, I'm thinking careful, careful, like I am too though, you know, but like I think I'm thinking it on a different level. I, I don't know. I have a, you know, my wife and I have been talking in the new city whether we're going to send our kids to the Jewish day school or not. And I have a deep ambivalence about it. I mean, part of it is I want my kids to be surrounded by uh, people of color and by Muslim kids and Hindu kids and right. uh, by the, the vast swath of America. Um, but I also have some real anxiety about, like, are they going to be indoctrinated into believing things that I don't, I'm not comfortable with? You know, I... I sort of came to a crisis moment of, uh, in my head, it was, would I rather my grandchildren be ultra-Orthodox or totally removed from all Jewish identity? And my realization was it wasn't even close. I want my grandkids to be uh, liberals. And by liberal, I mean I know, secular yeah. humanists. Right, right. Um, I would love for them to still find the meaning and the myth and the community and the stories that for me are Judaism, but for me, Judaism is um, my people's conversation for the last 3,000 years about the way that we should live in the world. It's not a story that begins with a truth claim. And I'm deeply concerned that my children will be taught that there's, there's a, a truth, truth claim. claim. Yeah. I want them to think there's no such thing as a truth claim. Yeah, except the ones of science. I mean, to me, well, in, no good science would claim to have a truth claim. Right, only relative truth. That's what Einstein shows us. We we can't hold absolute truth because uh, it's a because you're 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 a, you have a you're at a point of view. 
Yeah, exactly, right? It's uh, two spaceships going by each other. Which one's moving? Yeah. That's where you're sitting. Um, so you're going to go be a social justice Jew in St. Louis? Yeah. And you're going to try to you're going to try to capture young people and say to them Jew, being a Jew could really help you make the world a better place. No. 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 What are you going to tell? I'm going to try to find people who want to make the world a better place and help them make the world a better place and build community around that. And that is going to start with people who come to it with a Jewish identity because that's my starting place and that's my tribe and that's where I build from. But your framing is about getting people to be more Jewish and my goal is not about getting to pe- people to be more Jewish. My goal is I to- thought my framing was about telling Jewish people what Judaism how 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 it how it how it can be a tool in their lives. You know, you use that phrase. It's a, t- you know, the, yeah. yeah. It's a I tool. guess for me, it's like, using Judaism as a tool in their lives with a lot less of the telling. I feel like a whole generation of Jewish education has been about convincing Jews that Judaism has value. I'm not interested in that conversation at all. I am interested in using Judaism to create value in people's lives and in the world. And I believe Judaism is, in that sense, a, yeah, a technology I mean, that can do that. Like, if I'm using a hammer. Like like these guys out in the hallway. Yeah. Like if I'm using a hammer and or using a drill and it makes a lot of noise and the kids come around and they go like why 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 are you using that drill? And you go well this is actually a very useful tool for this thing like this this is how this works like you have to explain your tools if you're showing somebody how to do a job you have to show them you have to t- say to them this is why I choose these tools. Yeah okay okay. Um... Like, like, I, maybe I, you we're know, just getting know, lost in no, no. Here. I don't think we are. I think you're in danger. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm yeah, dead yeah, serious. I'm just me talking to you yeah, as a friend. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think you're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, because I think you're like, I think you're in danger of going like, I don't want to talk about Jewish identity at all. And I go like, well, wait a second. If it's a good tool, I want to talk about. You got to talk about it as a tool. And I'm going to use Jewish identity. I guess maybe to continue our metaphor. I want to show people how to use the hammer that they've already shown up carrying to build a house. And if there are people who show up and they want to learn how to hold a hammer for the first time, I love doing that. I love working with Jews by choice. It's maybe one of my favorite parts of my job. Um, But I'm not interested in being a part of the ad campaign that talks all about why hammers are important. And I feel like at some level, at least me personally, but much of the Jewish institutions. No, I want to be part of the. I think you should be part of the ad campaign that says, changing, fixing the world. As you, to use your language, like like making a difference in the world is 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 the is is the value of life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like where you'll find meaning, and and somebody says she's like, you know, how do you do how do you do that? And you're like, well, there are a lot of ways to do it. I happen to do it with this with this kind of hammer. Yeah. Is this the hammer that I use? And you go, like, why do you use that hammer? You go, like, well, because it works this way, and like, it's it's a cool tool, and I, I, you know, it's useful, and it's been useful to me and my family. Totally, but I also think fundamentally that hammer is useful to me because it's useful to me, and if a screwdriver is useful to you, great, as long as you're helping to build something. I think that's really true, but like, I think at some point, everybody needs a tool. Hold and- on, I just have to point out here that. 
it's the former evangelical convincing me to be more religiously dogmatic here, as I... Uh, <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and, and, and that's not surprising on yeah, some level. Yeah, yeah, like, I guess that's true. Like, like, I, 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 dog, like, like I said, like, I'm trapped in, like, I, you know, and it's not about believing anything. It's simply about saying, look, everybody needs a tribe and everybody needs a practice. And if it's lighting two candles or if it's something else or whatever it is, but like, don't throw out the idea that like this tribal stuff and this ritual stuff and this stuff like, 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 and so if somebody shows up and they say, well, we do it with screwdrivers and we do it, you go, hey, that's great. I just, I just but I do want to say like, you got to have a tool. Like, how do you get together? How do you guys eat? How do you, how do you sing? What do you sing? Mm-hmm. Like, and like, we sing these songs for this, like, for this, and we're not, there's no truth claim and there's no superiority claim attached to them. We're just simply saying, like, this is, these are the ones we grew up with. These are the totally. ones our parents bequeathed to us. And I think if you can't talk about that, and, 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 and I think, like, if you can't recognize that without a tool, without, without a, without a, a tribe building tool, without some tribe building stories, without some tribe building songs, you're not going to fix much. Yeah. Your tribe isn't going to be very effectual. Um, I think I agree with everything you said. Because uh, that's, that's, I walked into atheism and they have no tribe building tools and they're, and they're, and they're not effectual. And I'm like, listen, guys, Everybody else, they got a they got a screwdriver. These Jews over here, they got a hammer. We gotta get we gotta get a tool together. We gotta get we gotta get a we gotta get a, a an identity together. Yeah, yeah. So, so like I'm not against identity. I just want identity to be understood as a necessary a necessary aspect of fixing the world. Yes, the world only gets fixed by tribes. Yes. So I I would totally agree with that. That that tribal building tools have instrumental value in so much as they help us create the world we want to create. I think one of the problems in the Jewish world is we became so focused on the preservation of the tribe or the preservation of the tool. I got you. I know. I hear you. Um, you know, I, I felt like all of my time was spent at uh, annual conventions where we get together with the hammer makers of America to talk about why hammers are so important and how fewer and fewer people are using hammers. And the goal became that people should use hammers. Oh, yeah. No, my, my dad used to tell this great story about this guy who goes to visit a ref, a, a, an oil refinery. Yeah. And he gets on tour. And the guy says, this is where we, you know, this is where we take in the oil and this is where we do the refining and this is the, yep. this is the pipeline that moves here. And he's like, well, where's your shipping department where you put out the petroleum products? They go, oh, no, no. The, the refining process consumes all, like, we use all the energy. Yes, that we, yes exactly. And, it was, you know, and, and he was like, that's what can happen is that you can get so wrapped up in the hammer study and the hammer preservation and the hammer, you know, technique that you forget to actually go out there and hammer any nails. Like you go like, oh, you would never want to use these hammers on any nails. Yes. It, might, it might scratch them. Yes. Um, and so- It was a loss of purpose. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm totally with renewing the purpose of all those cool tribal things. Yep. I'm just going like, there's something about 
like like you 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 don't wanna you don't wanna it's funny like when you're a secular humanist trying to almost from scratch yeah come up with like literally I have a group of people that meet every other week and I'm trying like we're all trying to figure out like should we what song shall we sing like like what should we say before the meal should we do anything before the meal uh-huh. like like we're trying to come up with a, a way of life that we that that our kids can identify with or they could go like being a part of my family and their friends being part of this group means that we make the world a better place yes this way yes and 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 that we sing this way and that we hang out and i'm like so so i'm just like dude rabbi please do not do not underestimate the value of all that stuff and the importance and the importance of preserving it i totally value the myth um you know, and the other the other piece of my rabbinate, the, the other large piece other than justice, is education. I do a ton of sitting around with traditional Jewish text and people around a table in debating and discussing values and how we're supposed to live our lives. Uh, and you know, I mentioned this before, but to me, that's what Judaism is. It is a three thousand year old conversation that I get to add my layer onto. Um, and, and to me. You know, one of the classic Jewish metaphors is a pearl. Uh, The Torah being the grain of sand that goes into the oyster. But it's not the grain of sand that offers value. It's all of the layers that have been built around that grain of sand. And so to be active in Jewish life, to me, is to build uh, the next layer on that pearl. And you just want to make sure that that the pearl, that the conversation is about making the world a better place rather than that the conversation is about how to make better pearls. Yeah. Yeah, that's not, no, that's not bad. Um, It's not even about how to make better pearls. It's about how can we make sure that pearls survive. Right. Well, and again, like 70 years ago. Totally. There's a reason why people ask that question, how do we survive? Totally. But I also think it has to start with the recognition that the greatest threat to Jews 70 years ago is that they were murdering us in our streets, that, that our neighbors were murdering us. And today, the greatest threat that institutional Jewry in the United States frets about is that our neighbors are marrying us. And those are different things. We, we have to be able to say that the death of human beings and the loss of identity are different things and not morally equivalent things. Yeah. I'll just agree with that one. <laughs> I'll just agree with that one. That being said, like 73% of all uh, American Jews who got married in the last half decade married non-Jews. So I get why people are fretting. Yeah. Particularly people in institutions. Yeah. And your parents are cool because like, you, married, you married a woman you met at rabbinical school. Yeah, though my my parents would say, you know, it wasn't enough that we had to be stuck with one child who was a rabbi. We, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. That's not necessarily the dream come true. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, my parents are very proud. Yeah, I bet they are. Hey, this is a good conversation. I appreciate you having it with me. All right. That was me and Daniel. Hope you liked it. If you if you hung in there till now, you're amazing. And uh and I'm not going to I'm not going to make you wait any longer. We're going to have another episode dropping soon. I'll put on the quotes and all that stuff at the end. You've had enough of me for today. I will catch you next time. If you want to get in touch with me, bartcampola.org. If you don't want to get in touch with me, virtually any other website will do. Catch you later.
For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org. <laughs>